Welcome to the Microbials Matter podcast, where microbials matter. We welcome our host, Dr. William Zimmer, veterinarian and founder of BioVet. Dr. Zimmer has dedicated over 30 years to researching and developing products that support digestion and overall health in livestock. Welcome to the BioVet podcast with Dr. Zimmer. Morning, everybody. Yeah, morning, afternoon, wherever, wherever you, are, you are, listening to us talk. So, uh, Dr. Zimmer, you are really the founder and the person and the and the voice behind BioVet. But, you know, take me back. Talk to me about what BioVet really is. Like, if I don't know anything about BioVet, if I've never heard of BioVet, I'm living under a rock. Tell me, your, what's your elevator pitch, I guess, for what is BioVet? Well, if you're going to the first floor and I can only get it out in two words or three, it's yogurt for cows. Basically, as a company, we try to do everything we can to keep a cow healthy, and mainly through nutritional uh, applications, whether that's actual nutrients or whether that's microbials, things to keep the gut bacteria help, uh, happy and healthy and keep that animal going. That's kind of what we are. And anything that we can do to help that animal become more productive for a farmer, uh, more productive for our society, better for the ecosystems, whatever the buzzwords are today, we're finding that a lot of that is gut related. So, I mean, I like this analogy of the elevator. So if we're going to go up maybe to level two or three, what might be your take on what makes BioVet kind of stand out a little bit? Because, you know, when you when we talk about yogurt for cows, for example, buzzwords, like you said, it's out there in the industry. It's out there that probiotics are a thing. But what makes BioVet kind of that leader or kind of that reason that microbials are so popular. So the third floor pitch here would be over the last 30 plus years, we've taken a lot of time to investigate and develop different strains of particular bacteria. So we don't just look at them and saying, okay, this is the bacteria that makes yogurt. We look at this and say, exactly what kind of yogurt does it make? Exactly what does it do in the rumen of that cow or in the gut of that animal? And we choose strains of bacteria that have specific functions that can actually aid that animal, if you will, and aid that digestion of tract and keep it as healthy as possible, not just a strain. Um, there are literally hundreds of lactobacillus acidophilus, which by the way is a common yogurt culture, that have a place in animals and there are hundreds and thousands of them that don't. So you need to choose which strains are specifically going to be beneficial for that animal and for that application. We spend most of my time is actually spent doing those kinds of things is to look at those strains and, and the data behind them and say, what can this strain do? And then try to figure out how strain one and strain two and strain three can all work together. Because we're really trying to get like a symphony going, if you will. We have to have all the different parts of it in order to make the music play. In order to keep that gut going, there's it's not just one organism that does it. You can't just feed one organism and expect it to do something that another organism actually does. So you do have to come in with the right organisms, first of all, and then the right combinations. And that's the other thing that kind of sets us apart out there is we don't just choose one organism and say, yep, this is our great organism and we're going to do everything with it. We look at as many good organisms as we can and we say, what can they do together? So I mean, that's, that's right. our bacterial Better side. together. Teamwork makes the dream work, even well, in the it, bacteria world. Especially when you look at, now I'm going to go to the fourth floor here. Yeah. Um, especially when you look at the inside of an animal. And I'll, I'll use the cow as my example because they're really the pinnacle of this, if you will. That cow actually has more bacteria inside of its gut than there are cells in that cow's body, just because the mm -hmm. bacteria are so much smaller. And there are literally thousands and thousands of these things that we haven't even identified yet by name. So it's so complex, it's not just one organism. And a lot of the research that's out there would tell you that as well. You can't just put an organism into a digestive tract and expect it to take over because there's so much competition with all the other organisms that are there. And so you really have to come at it from a, a group approach, if you will, if you want to have an effect. 
I mean, this is this will be a topic probably for a different time because now I'm I'm thinking out loud. You know, how does what happens in the room and then play out to the rest of the digestive tract and then into probably that very particular small intestine um, area? I would imagine. You know, those for you those probably work in tandem. They with they these do work in tandem. They each part of the digestive tract has its own functions, and that's kind of what makes the ruminant special is because it has this big ruminant in front that actually allows it to eat the grasses and things that you and I can't digest and produce meat and milk from it. And then the rest of the digestive tract is very similar to ours. So the nutritional side of it there that is in that lower digestive tract, the small intestine that you mentioned, would be very similar whether it's a cow, a pig, a chicken. The functions are the same even though the tracts are slightly different anatomically speaking. You know, they're, they're different lengths and all that kind of stuff, but they do the same things. And so we can choose some organisms that have to be specific to that rumen. We can choose some organisms that can work in that lower intestinal tract of many, many animals. But we do have to work in concert with those because an organism has to be able to function in the rumen if that's its job. And if it has to get to the lower intestinal tract, that small intestine, it has to be able to survive that. And that's, you know, I think that's what really helps to set BioVet apart is, like you said, it's the symphony. But then you're also, I mean, when you get into the products and, and what everything you can do, can use these things across maybe different species, or you can use these in combination with things to achieve an optimum level of health for the animal, which is always our goal, right? Healthy healthy it, cows, healthy animals for farmers. And it's, it's interesting because the industry has come a long ways in the 30 plus years. I won't date myself here, but in the 30 plus years that I've been involved with it from, oh, we have to have a species specific organism. Bacteria are not species specific. They will live in a number of different organisms, a number of different hosts. And if you have come up with the COVID scenario that we just went through here, you realize that even viruses are that way. Mm -hmm. At one point in time, our knowledge said, hey, viruses, only humans get this virus. You know, we, we can't get it from a cow or something like that. Well, that's not true. Cowpox years ago was something that helped prevent smallpox in people. We know what the COVID virus, we've seen it in, you know, lions at the zoo and cats at home, our people. So we know that these things cross species and the bacteria do as well. So you can use these technologies in a number of different organisms, number of different animal applications. Some may be better at a specific animal than another animal, but they will do a function in a lot of these organisms, a lot of animals that are out there. So you kind of touched on the next route I want to go here. So you mentioned your 30 years of experience. You know, take me back and kind of, you know, as as farm folk, we're always interested in people's origin stories. You know, first question is always, did you grow up on a farm? And I, I think if I recall, your your experience is a little different than maybe what we might tag as the typical, stereotypical large practicing animal veterinarian. Yeah, I am a little different that way. Um, I did not grow up on a farm. Uh, my portion of the family moved off the farm at my grandfather's generation. It was typical in those days. If you had a number of kids, some got to stay on the farm and take over and some had to go find a job elsewhere. What I did get though is my senior year of high school, I actually decided as a freshman in high school that I wanted to become a veterinarian. I actually had a name picked out with a friend of mine. Okay. So yeah, you're like 14 and you're like, yeah, this vet yep. thing seems pretty cool. I think I'll, well, I'll pursue and, that. And part of that was because I did grow up around animals. When I was younger, we raised sporting dogs. In fact, at one time we had 30-some German short hairs. Oh, gosh. So, you know, the little yipping all over the place. But they were part of my life from early on. You know, animals have always been around. But when I got to be a senior in high school and needed a little extra cash, I went and helped milk on a dairy farm. And oh, I there just, it is. I, yeah. Just the cows, it was an animal that I didn't understand at first. But they're pretty easy to understand if you tune into them. And I was able to tune into them. And I kind of fell in love with cows when I was a senior in high school. And so from that point on, my focus changed from I want to be a small animal veterinarian to I'd rather do something with livestock, in particular cows. 
Um, I used to tell people all the time, I said, I can tell when a cow's going to kick me before she knows. Mm. That's I've gotten that good with cows that you kind of understand them. And I think a lot of dairy people are that way. They understand their cows. They, they can tune into how they're feeling and the attitudes they have just like you can with people. And so that's where I kind of started into the, the world that I'm in now. Did my years at the university, went through vet school, went into private practice, uh, had the, the luxury actually and the privilege of being in a mixed animal practice. So I got to work on cows and calves and dogs and cats and horses and pigs and llamas. I'm trying to think if that's pretty much some all. Some goats, maybe. Uh, some goats, sheep. maybe. The ability to work with a number of these different animals really kind of gives you a background to say, okay, this animal and that animal have this in common. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times the ailments that you're seeing, you can go back and pinpoint to specific nutritional issues. Some are specific to that species. Some are shared by a lot of different species because of the way we handle them and treat them as people. And so you, you, I got to learn some of that stuff as I went along. And where I progressed from it from there, because probably 80% of my time was spent with cows, is pretty soon I learned that the things that I was dealing with with cows as a veterinarian were probably 90% caused by nutritional-related issues. Whether it was actual feeds, whether it was the way we were feeding, whether it was the way we were managing that feed, there was just all these issues that were out there that somehow affected these cows. And so that's where I really got into as a veterinarian. I started doing nutrition work. When I left practice, I went into the industry as a nutritionist and soon learned that for all these issues that were going on, it wasn't the nutritionist's fault. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of things that were beyond their control. And that's really where BioVet came out is some of the things that I could not identify and could not address as a nutritionist because we're trying to do nutrition across the entire herd, a group of animals. I had to be able to do things for specific animals at specific times. And so BioVet came out of that with these nutritional microbial supplements that we can use for a cow, again, as the example, at calving time. It's impossible Mm -hmm. as a nutritionist to balance a ration on the day that a cow gives a calf. To that point, I think it's interesting that you bring that up that, you know, when you talk to nutritionists or you you go on farm, just the way we store feed, the way we put um, maybe preservatives into feed, uh, feed is just so inconsistent. It's very inconsistent because it starts, again, part of my past. Once I learned that the nutrition was the majority of the issues, I soon learned that the way we grow the feed that we feed the cows is also part of the issue. And so it starts in the soil. It starts with the weather. It starts with our storage capacity and our capabilities. It starts with the overall environment of where you are. Things are different here in the upper Midwest than they are in, say, California, which is different Mm -hmm. than Florida, just because of the overall environment you have. You have different temperatures. You have different levels of humidity. Feeds store differently. They grow differently. They have different insults. We're growing corn on corn on corn versus rotating crops through and growing things that break up certain disease cycles that will impact the level of molds, possibly mycotoxins that we have. How feeds will ferment depends on how much sugar they have in them, which comes from the sunshine. So if we have a cloudy period, I mean, just there's all these things that go on. It's it's a, you know you got you got to give you got to give these dairy farmers props, right? Because you know when you think about all the things out of their control, man, the fact that they can even come up with something that's good for cows to eat is really and remarkable. You know they have yeah they've they've gotten it down you know to they do pretty decent at it, right? But what's even more fascinating to me is that even if we have a decent feed product, like you mentioned, the cow themselves are all over the board and, you know, we still try and group them by certain things. But for being the number one expense on a farm, gosh, there's just so much variability there, right? And it sounds like that's what you saw. I saw a lot of that. Again, my day 
I happen to have the disadvantage of coming through. My first year in veterinary practice was the year of 1988, which here in the upper Midwest oh, that was, was a severe drought. drought. People did not have feed. So all of a sudden, they were shorting cows on fiber. They were bringing in feeds from Nebraska and, you know, states that did have mm -hmm. feed that we didn't have. Um, finding out real quick that the way they grew their forages was different than the way we grew our forages, and they fed differently. Sometimes that was good. Sometimes it was not so good. I just all the stories I have from back then. It was just you know, amazing how much I, the I variation was, in feed was. I was pretty little when that happened, but I mean, my dad's. You know, we still talk about the drought of '88, and we talk about the, you know next year '89 wasn't any better, really. And you know, you start. Let's just about, say I, I got to do a lot of <laughs> DA surgeries early in my career. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, among other things. You know, kind of shifting gears here a little bit. Um, you know, we've talked a little bit about the individual cow. Tell me a little more about like what your philosophy is or what you see when it comes to kind of treating cows as individuals and kind of helping them to really kind of achieve their their best life, right? Their best health. So there are obviously things that nutritionists do as a group of an animal, and we can do that with direct-fed microbials. We do have things we want to feed to animals every single day, and every animal should get them. Then we have those areas where cows are individuals and have to be treated individually. And so the prime example of that is anything that would go to the hospital pen or that's sick that a veterinarian is treating. Mm -hmm. Most of us don't realize that when a cow is, has mastitis or some other inflammation that's going on, that inflammatory response may increase that cow's nutrient requirement by 40% whenever she's going oh, really? through that. That much? That much. That much. And at the same time, because she's running a fever or doing some other things, she really doesn't want to eat. So her feed intake goes down even though her energy requirement goes up. And how do you deal with that? Well, now you have to do with it as an individual animal. So you do your things as a veterinarian would do, but then you also have to look at what can I do and what can I supply from a nutritional standpoint that that animal really, really needs because I know she's not going to eat that much. Mm -hmm. And so whether that becomes something that I give as a form of a pill or a capsule or a paste or a liquid drench or something like that to help supplement what she will eat, it becomes part of your, your management practice, if you will, for those types of cows. You have the same scenario when a cow is calving, when a calf is born, at different phases of their life. We run through these, these high-stress situations. We just talked about feed a little bit. When we do have feed, and we here in the upper Midwest, we change from one silo or one forage source to another one. That is a change that some animals really need to be treated more individually be very, because it's very stressful on them. And it's very dramatic. I mean, not all silage piles, it doesn't matter if you harvest them the same day. Not exactly. all silage piles. Um, there are differences from morning to afternoon to evening just because of the humidity and how much things dry down and then how they store. And then what we get back out of them for nutrients, protein levels that are actually usable by that animal. And the other thing that we have to remember when it comes to a lot of these things is not just the animal we're talking about. It's also the gut organisms that are there as well, because mm -hmm. the cow especially, they eat first. Yeah. Cow, you, you don't just feed something to a cow and expect the cow to get it. The, the bacteria get the first chance at it. And so if they're going to utilize it, they're going to utilize it. And if they're not, then the cow gets the chance to use it. So you do have to kind of play with those things a little bit and keep the bacteria happy as well as the animal. And that's really where I, when we start looking at individual animals, I go, okay, what is going to go on inside this animal's gut that's going to affect the cow? What can I do to the cow through certain nutrients, but what do I have to do with the gut? If she's off feed for a period of time, say at calving time, or she just went off feed for whatever reason, and all of a sudden she starts back on feed, well, now she's going to be prone to acidosis mm -hmm. because she's going to generate these, these high levels of acid in the room, and those organisms are going to want to grow as soon as they eat feed. Right, yeah. So you, you get these swings that go on, and some of that happens even on a daily basis when we're feeding cows. 
And so how can I keep that gut in a healthy pH, for example, for a longer period of time during the day? I can use a buffer in the ration or I can use microbials that can actually alter the way these acids are so that the cow can process them better. The latter part of that is what we do as a company. So it gives you another tool to manage these cows as individuals and as groups. You know, it's funny you mentioned that. You know, I, I think one of the first rules they say in nutrition, from what I've heard, is that you're not feeding cows, you're feeding, you're feeding, you're feeding bacteria. Organisms. Yeah, you're feeding. And that's especially true in, in cows. I used to tell people this all the time. If, if you can be an agronomist and do things for the soil, you can probably, you know, if you're a nutritionist, you can probably do that because that's a little simpler. If you can feed a cow, you can feed a monogastric animal as long as you learn the rules that are there because their systems yeah. are so much less complex, if you will. Again, that cow is, to me, that's the pinnacle of what a digestive tract is. It's so different than any other animal. It, it is. And I think it's, you know, it's fascinating that when you look at the science and, you know, what things like BioVet can do, these combination, the symphony of things, um, you know, these bacteria, we just, we just don't see that really played out often in a lot of other species into a point where we're actually pretty good at it, I would say, right? Absolutely. I mean, we're, we have a long way to go. Don't get me wrong. We're just beginning to learn what's going on from a microbial standpoint inside these animals. They call it the microbiome, and it's so complex. Mm -hmm. We're just learning. Every time they study it, they find some new group of organisms that they hadn't found before. Well, now that you find them, you have to be able to identify them, to measure them, to find out what they do, all these things. And so that has progressed exponentially over the last 30 years from the days of, well, let's put this in the cow and see what happens, to we can now look at groups of organisms and kind of predict what they're going to do and what enzymes they're going to express based on their DNA and, and all those types of things. So there's a huge complexity to it that we need to understand that we have a long way to go. But for where we are right now, to be able to take organisms, combine them together that affect a target of the rumen, a target of the small intestine, a target of the large intestine, to be able to put all those functions together is really, I think, some of the things that I like to take pride in that we do the best. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, you know, kind of along that, that line and that philosophy, you know, take me back a little bit. BioVet, when you started, when you, when you went on this venture, what was something that you saw as maybe the biggest issue or the biggest area of, of cow health, animal health that you wanted to try and, I don't want to say fix, but try and improve or, or supplement first? Like where, what was kind of that first, I don't want to say product, but first piece of science that really kind of drove the rest of the BioVet I'd like to system. say that, that we've fixed this, okay, but <laughs> I'm going to be point blank. The same three major issues that I started dealing with 30 years ago are still the three they major primary exist. issues, especially in dairy cows, but beef animals as well. Acidosis, ketosis, basically yeah. high levels of ketone bodies because of a lack of energy, and calcium. Mm -hmm. Especially at calving time, we have not gotten a good enough handle on the whole calcium thing that's out there. We've made a lot of strides, and I'll start with calcium. We've made a lot of strides with anionic salt therapies, things like this. But that day that a cow calves, her metabolism is such that we, that we really need to zero in on that calcium level for that day. And we're learning a lot. We're learning that what I do that day from a calcium standpoint can also affect that cow for the rest of her lactation. And so if I give a, a calcium supplement, for example, on that day, even if I've used anionic salts the way they should be used and gotten rid of clinical milk fever, the cows are still slightly low in calcium. Mm -hmm. And how fast they get up and going depends on what we do during that first 24 to 36 hours generally. And so when we give a calcium supplement at that point in time, we'll generally throughout the rest of lactation, at least for the, probably the first four to six months for sure, based on the data we've seen, we can increase milk production for that long a period of time by giving something on a single day. So you know, there's some issues there that we can affect. And that's the one with calcium. With energy, ketosis, our genetics on our dairy cows especially are so good. They've advanced so rapidly. 
that and, we and continue we, and continue to. We really struggle to feed that cow for her potential. We have created mm-hmm. such a genetic profile on these cows; they have the capability of giving 200 pounds of milk a day. They do, yeah. But how many cows do we get that actually do that? And that's because we limit, even from day one, if they go through diarrhea, that's going to affect their genetic potential for the rest of their life. If they go through pneumonia, that's going to affect their genetic potential for the rest of their life. If we starve them for a short period of time, that's going to affect their genetic potential for the rest of their life. When they do become lactating cows and their energy demand skyrockets right after calving and we can't feed them enough to give that 200 pounds of milk, we're to get something less. And so to me, you look at it and you go, even if I'm a 80-pound bulk tank average or a 100-pound bulk tank average, there's some limiting factor that's there because my cows probably have the genetic capability of doing more. And a lot of that comes back to nutrition, some of the limitations we have in group feeding, which as herds have gotten larger, become a necessity from a management standpoint. Mm-hmm. But I'm sorry, you know, they leave some cows behind. They do. I mean, so we're into, you know, the practicality and the reality versus the idealism Correct. of feeding and managing cows, right? I, I, I don't and, think many and, people and are going to disagree. this is a business, okay? But, this yeah, is a this business. Is, it has to be economically yeah. profitable if I'm going to produce milk. It has to be economically profitable if I'm going to raise animals. And so it, it becomes that type of a, a situation where maybe what's best for my pocketbook in the long run isn't going to be optimal for the cow. And at other times, maybe what's optimal for the cow or getting close to being optimal is going to be best for my pocketbook. It's That's the tough part of being in the industry is figuring all those things out. Right. And I tell people there's as many ways to, to farm as there are farmers in the world because no two people do it the same. But, you know, to that point, that's where, you know, I think BioVet, again, kind of, I don't want to say fills a gap, but can help keep that health up or... or Keep that immunity up so that they're not spending as much energy fighting. And And again, we're creating some efficiencies then across the board and across the lactation, even subsequent lactations. So, you know, the third rung on my ladder that I talked about earlier was the acidosis part. Yeah. What you just mentioned is a big part of that. When you get an acidosis that goes on inside the digestive tract, especially in a cow's rumen, the impact that that has on the organisms, the number of organisms that it kills, those organisms die, break up. They have a huge number of endotoxins associated with their cells that now become inflammatory to the cow. Mm-hmm. And so now I've, I've created a situation from something as simple as rumen acidosis to creating inflammation in the cow that she now has to deal with on a systemic standpoint. And I've increased her energy requirement in order to do that because she wants to mount an immune response because all of a sudden she's getting showered with these bacterial antigens going, oh, no, you know, I've got a big problem here. So that's a situation where if we can deal with something that's going on from a feed standpoint through using specific microbes to change that acid load, that acid profile, I can affect the immunity of that cow and what she has to deal with with her immune system. And if I don't have to spend that 40% of my groceries in addition to fighting off something that I shouldn't have to fight off to start with, I can put that towards maintaining body condition or producing more milk or producing a calf, those types of things. So, I mean, if I'm understanding you correctly, because my science on rumen acidosis isn't, isn't as strong as it probably should be. So when, these, when this acidosis come in, when the pH in the rumen drop, we're killing off essentially some of the microbes, some Correct. of the bacteria. And, and from there, they, they spread throughout the body and can cause a number of yep. minor subsequent issues, inflammation, really anywhere in the body, right? Really anywhere in the body. And it, it happens in different phases. So something as simple as I get an acidosis the first time, a short-term bout of it, I'm going to kill off some organisms. They're going to die. Their endotoxins are going to be excreted, exposed to the gut wall, if you will. And some of those may actually cross the gut wall, depending on how good that gut wall barrier is and sometimes they'll all be kept out Mm -hmm. 
whether some of them make it in or not, they will have an effect locally at the gut and create inflammation, which can then trigger other inflammatory response in the rest of the animal. Or if that acidosis has gone on for day after day after day kind of thing, we start to get these breakdowns in that gut wall where when the endotoxins are released, they actually cross the gut wall and create the systemic inflammation themselves. And then those endotoxins can flow throughout the body. So all of a sudden we're seeing feet problems, for example, in mm-hmm. cows that have chronic acidosis because those endotoxins have created issues in other parts of the body and created an and inflammatory migrates. response, changed the circulation in the feet because they're the most distal, well, one of the most distal parts of the body that blood has to go to. And because they're so low to the ground compared to the heart, things, you know, it takes a lot of pressure to get that blood back up off the feet. So you, you can do these things and, and create these issues with just simple acidosis that long-term can affect that animal. I'm, I'm looking forward. We're going to have lots of fun things to talk about as in, in subsequent episodes of this, but um, kind of as a kind of a lasting note here, um, what's, you know, back to that elevator in the first floor, um, if you were to go all the way to the top in, in a couple of sentences, what, you know, is maybe your personal philosophy or BioVet's overarching philosophy when it comes to, you know, what you're trying to achieve and the direction you want uh, or direction BioVet wants to move or, or expand to? Well, this is a pretty tall building, so <laughs> <laughs> well, we know, may not have time in this it's, podcast it's to get of, that you know in what? depth no, this, with it. This, but... this building is full of a lot of labs and a lot of science and a lot of um, really cool information that we're going to get to. And I can't, you know, I can't wait. I, as much like you, I like talking the science about it because we had a great conversation at World Dairy Expo this past year too. So we'll get to all those, but the, the short, message, the short take-home message for us as a company, if I had to try to distill it down into actions, it's healthy animals are productive animals. And so anything that we can do, healthy gut, healthy animal, better production, which ultimately should be better profitability and better economic status for our customers. Um, that's kind of distilling it down now. How do we get to each one of those individual phases? There's a lot of different avenues, and I'm, I'm assuming that's what this series is going to do here as we go forward is to touch some of those that are more prominent and, and pretty much everybody faces. Again, as you said, every operation is an individual, and they all have different levels of management for different groups of animals and different things that they're doing. And so as a company for us, we like to – my adage is I don't want to make the nutrition program. I want to make the nutrition program better. I want to make your nutrition, your management, everything, look at it and say, okay, if you're doing this for vaccines and this for animal welfare, what can we help you do with that animal's nutritional program that will fit into your total management system and make it better? And that's really what we try to do. My days as a nutritionist are pretty well over. I don't balance rations anymore, but I understand what nutritionists go through and what feed limitations are there. And I try to help in those areas that we can do to make that nutritionist job easier, to make that animal more productive as it goes through. So that's really what we and, and that's what we're going to talk about. That's what exactly. we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about how the different phases, how the different science, how the different um, supplements, micro, microbials, yogurts, if you will, are going to help along those ways. So, and we're going to have some people uh, join us. So it won't be just Dr. Zimmer and Liz the whole time, but looking forward to, to talking some more cow talk, really. That's cow health, cow talk. That That's what we're doing here. To learn more about microbials, check out our other podcast episodes or read more at bio-vet.com. <laughs>